The Old Testament reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4 and 25 to 32. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me. The father, as well as the son, both alike belong to me. The soul of who sins is the one who will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O Israel, here, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all of the offences he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust? O house of Israel, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one of you according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offences you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading this morning comes from St. Matthew, chapter 21, beginning to read at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Or from men. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. 
the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Amen. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts and minds be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How would you feel if you opened your front door and a seemingly random stranger barged past you and proceeded to tell you off for the cleanliness of your kitchen or told your children how to behave. I suspect that you would be rather cheesed off and probably tell them where to go. How is it any of their business? What right do they have to say anything at all? Your house, your rules. On the face of it, in our reading today from Matthew's Gospel, the chief priests and the elders have every right to come and challenge Jesus. They're the ones responsible for the temple. And Jesus had received no formal authorization to teach or preach in the temple. How would they, how were they to know if he would be speaking appropriately? They were responsible for the good conduct within the building and here was Jesus acting in an unauthorised manner. What right do you have to come in here and start all of this? The trouble is, yet again, it's something to do with the lecture that we don't know what's gone on just before this story that we have today. It seemingly lands out of the blue with us. We've shifted from Matthew 18 to Matthew 21. We're not aware of what has gone on in the passages between. But the action has shifted significantly. Jesus has entered Jerusalem with the triumphal entry that we remember on Palm Sundays, when we're not locked down. And he's gone into the temple and he's driven out all of the moneylenders. He's challenged the corruption of the temple system profiting out of people's faith, and in particular he has uh, worried and antagonised the collusion between the temple authorities and the Roman occupying forces, which had led to such misery, oppression and injustice. The high priests and the elders are not so much having a go at Jesus for his unauthorised teaching and preaching in their temple, but rather they are challenging him on the fact that he has utterly disrupted their systems. He has called them out for their arrogance, their collusion with injustice, their lining of their own pockets. And they don't like it that he has challenged them. They need Jesus to be stopped and fast. So the first method they try is to discredit him, uh, to play the man rather than the ball. Who are you, an illegitimate, rabble-rousing preacher? What are you doing here? How dare you? Go back to that nasty Galilean pile you came from. What right do you have to say these things? 
What they hadn't realised was that Jesus was far more skilled in debate, wilier than the craftiest of politicians. Ask him a question, and instead of answering it, he responds with another question, one designed specially to trip you up. The question was, on the face of it, a perfectly reasonable one. By what authority? But their attitudes undermined all of that. Maybe Jesus wasn't being cryptic in his response just for the sake of it. Maybe he was being cryptic because the priests and the elders refused to be open and honest with him about their very motives. Jesus' response reveals that they were motivated primarily not by a means of uh, decency or proper behaviour, but by their own self-interest. When they discuss how to respond to him, they aren't concerned with the truth, but rather with what people will think if they answer one way or another. So, as with a lot of politicians, a lot of the time, they decide to sit on the fence. On the face of it, their response, the I don't know response, is a work of genius. It removes the respondent from being implicated in anything. It allows them to save face. And there are occasions in life where to say I don't know is a good thing. It means that you can go away and find out for yourself. It means also that the, the threat of things like fundamentalism are abated. Those who claim that they fully know God are always the ones that frighten me the most. Better instead, I suspect, to go with the line of the hymn, Morning by morning, new mercies I see, to find out more about God on a day-by-day -day basis. To say I don't know indicates an inquiring mind. But there is the alternative to that I don't know uh, response. It can indicate a supreme lack of indifference or a lack of ability at making a decision and then moving on once you have made the decision. But here in our reading, the response to Jesus by the temple leaders only shows them to be dishonest. Their intent is malign. They do not want Jesus to continue to challenge their authority and expose their corruption. So they don't answer the question. Jesus decides that he isn't done with them yet and decides to tell a little story about obedience and experience. And at the end of the tale he asks the chief priests and the elders to answer another question. Which of the two sons does the father's will? Compared with Jesus' previous question, this one, well it's a no-brainer. So the chief priests and the elders answer confidently. The one who actually did the work, of course. The chief priests and the elders were so keen to save face in front of the crowds at the temple, but in answering Jesus' seemingly harmless question, they have shown themselves to be just like the disobedient son in the story. Jesus is stressing the importance of being straight with God, not hiding behind false promises. Being obedient to whatever, wherever and however God has called you. In God's eyes, 
the elders and the chief priests are no better than tax collectors or prostitutes, despite their elevated position in society. Jesus' story illustrates that those on the fringes of society are often willing to change their minds and respond to God's call. But the leaders have hardened their hearts. They wouldn't believe John's teachings and now they won't even believe Jesus' ones either. Maybe it's because they have a lot to lose. For them to change their minds would have been an enormous sacrifice because following John ultimately would mean following Jesus. Changing their minds like the obedient son in the story would have meant potential public humiliation and a loss of their social standing, let alone all of the wealth that they might have accumulated. It would have meant admitting that they were wrong. But even harder, it would have meant that they would have had to have taken a chance that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he wasn't just another random person with a messianic complex, he was the Messiah. Perhaps that's why it was easier for the tax collectors and the prostitutes to follow God. They really didn't have all that much to lose. Had the chief priests and the elders focused less on what was at stake for them and more on what they could have gained, maybe their response would have been different. Jesus challenged the corruption of his age. He challenged the vast injustices of the Roman occupation and he highlighted non-violently the perils that those involved in such practices are doing to their very souls. He offers them a way out. The central part of the Christian faith, of the message of Jesus, is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent, to change your thinking, to shift your perspective, to listen out for the call of God, to start again, or in this season to perform a U-turn. When was the last time that you changed your mind about something important or someone important? And what was it that caused you to change? For us, as church and as society, we are in need of repentance. To hear God's call again. To maybe think about those things that we are doing wrong and change them. Change our attitudes. Change our perspectives. We live in a society of significant social ills. Greed and corruption are fueling injustice. There is latent prejudice and fear caused by racism, misogyny, homophobia. There is the selfish disdain for the plight of the most vulnerable in our society. Too many where their lives have had all of their dignity removed. God is calling to us. What are you doing about it? The church can never be silent. 
The church must always challenge that which is wrong. And in doing so, it must follow the example of its Lord and Saviour in challenging those who are hard of heart, those who will never repent, those who refuse to U-turn. For Jesus, the implications of his challenging the religious leaders is that they will go on from our story today. They won't debate much further, but instead they'll start to plot. They'll wheedle away behind his back. Rather than repent, their hearts are even further hardened. Too many things for them were blocking how they responded to God's call. Over the coming months, how are you? How are we as a church? How are we as a society going to challenge injustice? Maybe in the period of lockdown we could take up new things. Write a letter a week on behalf of Amnesty. Support a development project overseas with so many of them with their funding cuts during these difficult times. We're safe to do so. Our voluntary sector is absolutely struggling at the moment and maybe there are volunteering options out there that you could get involved in. At the moment, as a church, we're waiting on further information from Catching Lives about how they will be supporting Canterbury's Rough Sleepers over the coming months. But they have said that they will be looking for volunteers, so watch this space about that. How are you to respond to God's call? How are we to respond to God's call? Amidst all of the uncertainty, all of the confusion that there is in our world at the moment, there are a few things that I'm clinging on to. Firstly, that I know that God is a God of hope, a God who gives us hope even in the darkest moments of our lives. That's what the resurrection teaches me, if nothing else. But I'm also clinging on to the fact that every single day, God is calling to each of us. Will you come and follow me? Will you be part of my work? God is calling us every single day, each of us. And it might be occasionally that God is calling us to new things, to repent, to change our thinking, to change the way we are working. Every day he is calling us, will you come and follow me? Will you be part of my work? So, my question for each of us this day is, are we listening? Or are we behaving like the religious leaders, where so many things have drowned out Christ's call to us? Or have we deliberately silenced the voice of Jesus? Are we listening? Will you come and follow me? Will you be part of my work? And if you are listening, then my prayer is this, that you'll have the courage and the faith to respond to Christ's call. Will you come and follow me? 
Will you be part of my work? May God give us that courage and faith we need to be ever obedient to him as we go about our daily lives.